Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Anne Toomey McKenna. Anne is a professor of law at Penn State Dickinson Law School and a nationally recognized trial attorney and author in cyber, privacy, electronic surveillance, cellular, and evidence law. Throughout her impressive career, Anne has consulted and indeed continues to consult with government officials and industry leaders about questions pertaining to wiretapping, computer and cellular searches, geolocation tracking, cyber law, unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs, and commercial remote sensing satellites. In other words, she is a walking encyclopedia when it comes to all things related to privacy and surveillance law here in the United States. She is also the co-author of a renowned electronic surveillance law treatise, and she is frequently consulted and interviewed in local and national TV and print news media, including the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, NPR's Morning Edition, Bloomberg Radio, Fox, NBC, and CBS, to name a few. Most importantly, to me at least, is that Anne was my mentor when I was at Penn State Law. I simply would not be in the position that I'm in today without her help, and she is on my Mount Rushmore of people who have impacted my professional career, and I'm grateful to now call her a friend. In this episode, Anne and I discuss a fascinating and critically important question, which is the intersection between public health and privacy. Specifically, how do we balance individual liberties during a pandemic? Do we go the route of South Korea and China, where the government decided to broadcast private health information to the public for the sake of mitigating the spread of the coronavirus? Or do we adopt a more moderate approach and allow individuals to retain control over their personal information? These questions are ones that the United States is grappling with as we speak. Anne is a leading thinker on this topic, and it is a true honor to have her on the podcast today. So without further delay, I bring you our next true neighbor, Professor Anne Toomey McKenna. All right, I'm here with Anne Toomey McKenna. Anne, thanks for coming on the podcast. Good morning, Tom. I'm happy to be here with you. I feel like I'm having a flashback to uh, 2016 and 2017 in law school because was there a single day that went by where we weren't in communication in some way? <laughs> no, there wasn't. And, and you know, it was an exciting time, but this is really kind of brings to the forefront all of those things that we were, you know, discussing and that you were learning in cyber law and information privacy law. No, it's, I think, the best possible education I could have had because even my my research paper in your class was on geolocation data and I was able to find it and was just kind of flipping back through it. And it's amazing to see just how relevant all those questions are, especially right now. And it's a very timely conversation to have, but, um, to, to kick it off at, at a top level, you know, uh, how would you describe the impact that the pandemic is having on privacy in this country? Well, 
I think besides just the, the 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 humanity of it, right? The awful human suffering that we're seeing, and, and the fear and the anxiety, the shift um, in in our daily existence is is hard to quantify. You know, there are those of us who are studying this, and we focused on privacy law and constitutional concepts our whole lives, but. I think the important thing to recognize is if we step aside and, and not in any way disregarding or discounting the, you know, just the hum, human impact that we're seeing and the awful tragedies we're witnessing unfold, as well as the heroism we're seeing, is that, that the pandemic is leading to these comprehensive information sharing shifts, right? They're privacy challenges that are unprecedented in, in the modern era. And they matter, and I know we'll talk as we go on today about why they matter, but we're talking about you know companies and governments engaging in electronic surveillance, not just of one aspect of your privacy, not just like where your location is or something like that, but governments, companies, even healthcare providers engaging in electronic surveillance of all of your data, right? Merged together, your health data, your geolocation data, your Zoom happy hours, your Facebook posts, right? Your take on the pandemic, where your attention is held at the screen when you're in a Zoom meeting at work. Your employer can know that. With whom you're connecting, whether you're violating a lockdown order, you know, all of these things, it's, it's merged together, right? And we have tech and government working together in efforts to fight a pandemic, but also at the same time in ways that have placed every single citizen under you know constant surveillance in a way that we just have never seen in the modern era privacy is one of those issues too that has really uh catapulted in the past few years just be because of the rapid advancements in technology and so i think it would be helpful maybe to start back at the origins of privacy law in the united states obviously now we view it as a, a constitutional right it's embedded in the constitution but doesn't actually say in the Constitution that we have a right to privacy. And so can you tell us a little bit about where this concept comes from and, and where we can first find it in jurisprudence in, in our country? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I think, you know, you say you brought up Constitution and the right to privacy. The word privacy doesn't even appear in the Constitution, and yet we think of it as such a fundamental American right. Um, so in 1890, two lawyers in Boston, Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis, published this article in Harvard's Law Review called The Right to Privacy. And they made this argument that there is a fundamental constitutional right to privacy. And this idea of privacy is something that we have treasured and always held dear and is in fact embedded in the Constitution. And they did that by looking not just at the Constitution, but at all of our law, right? They looked at evidence law and they said, hey, there's a reason that we protect um, people against self-incriminating. There's a reason that we recognize privacy of between attorneys and clients, right? There's all these things that we recognize and protect with privacy. The idea of property rights, we see, you know, the right to say, hey, don't come on my property is really based in this fundamental notion of privacy for self, for home. Um, and, and so Warren and Brandeis expounded this and said, we need to have the law formally recognize a right to privacy. And that doesn't mean you know that, that we're having a shift or a change in law so much as we're recognizing something that we've always talked about but never formally recognized. It took a long time for um, that to evolve though because you know the the at the time Warren and Brandeis themselves as two lawyers were really struggling with kind of the growth of technology and invasions of privacy, right? So small cameras were in, had been invented and journalists were you know kind of 
buying and selling dirt gossip and they could do it with little cameras catching a picture of who was having lunch with who and Warren and Brandeis said hey we really need to have something that protects us but it took a long time for that actually to make its way the idea of a right to privacy as a legal right to make its way into our case law into our courts and the first time that uh, you know we we get this full um, opinion from Brandeis about the right to privacy is in a case about wiretapping, right? Where, where law enforcement was wiretapping phone lines and they were doing it without a warrant. So we'll talk about that in a second, warrants. But in that, in that case, Olmstead, uh, Brandeis says, you know, he's in the dissent because the Supreme Court looked at it and said, no, you know, the, the, it's okay to wiretap someone's phones because, you know, that's, you know, the phone lines are traveling outside your home and it's okay for agents to click into that and it doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment. And I'll talk about that in a second, um, you know, the, sort of what the Fourth Amendment is, but it protects us from unreasonable searches and seizures. And Brandeis gave this really passionate dissent where he said, no, this should be unlawful. This should violate our right um, of, you know, of, to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. We shouldn't have the government just be able to tap into our phone conversations. And he, he, he his wording was really like, a, you know, is very prescient to what we're seeing now and, and to what we've seen as technology involves. And he, he gives, gives us this language, time works changes, brings into existence new conditions and purposes. He, he mentions that, so what do we do with our constitution, right? How is our constitution going to adapt to apply to this? And when I say constitution, what Warren and Brandeis had, had written about as lawyers were the parts of the constitution that they felt really protected privacy. And that was the First Amendment, right? Our freedom of speech and our freedom of association, our right to express our ideas anonymously and be protected. And then that, you know, the, the idea of the Fourth Amendment, unreasonable searches and seizures. And then we had the Fifth Amendment, which I've already mentioned, you can't be compelled to testify against yourself. So, so in, in this case, Warren, uh, Brandeis says, look, let's look at, you know, in his dissent, we have to consider the progress of science when we think about the Constitution and what our law should protect. And so he writes, the progress of science in furnishing the government with means of espionage is not likely to stop with wiretapping. Ways may someday be developed by which the government, without removing papers from secret drawers, can reproduce them in court and by which it will be enabled to expose to a jury the most intimate occurrences of the home. Advances in related sciences may bring means of exploring unexpressed beliefs, thoughts, and emotion. And I know we'll continue to talk about this, but what's remarkable that Brandeis is writing the, that dissent in 1928, hmm. really prescient. Uh, you know, we see that technology was already really challenging privacy. But now when we see how technology is being used in a pandemic, you know, it, it, it's, it is very dystopian in some ways. And he had that, the line I think is even more remarkable given what's happening now where he said that in so many words that we should be most on guard when the government's purposes are bene uh, beneficent, right? When yeah, exactly. And so, w what do we? Yeah, we see that here with with a pandemic where where we're being told by government and we're being and and tech giants, hey, we're giving and sharing this data to to slow the spread of coronavirus. That's a hard uh, thing to push against. It's a hard argument to say. Wait a minute. Is this right how you're doing this? And is this lawful? You know, it's kind of, uh, you know, and I know we'll talk more about this, but it's that, 
It's that idea when we have a threat to our national security, that kind of takes us outside of the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment and these things we're talking about. Because we look at the protection of our country and our nation as sometimes overriding these constitutional concepts. Yeah. And going back to that basic understanding, he I think he even was almost this ending line where he said, the greatest dangers to liberty lurk in insidious encroachment by men of zeal, well-meaning, but without understanding. And so I, I just, and you mentioned how forward-looking he was about the idea that if we try to forecast decades from now, what kind of technology we'll have, this issue becomes all the more important because the technology will continue to advance. Um, and so he writes that in 1928. Uh, what happens from there? What kind of ebbs and flows does privacy law go through over the next several decades? Yeah. So in, in 1928, the Olmstead majority, the Supreme Court said wiretapping was not, not unlawful. And unlike what we see today, we had a Congress who acted and said, wait a minute, we don't want our citizens to be wiretapped. And they passed the first ever federal wiretapping law in 1928, immediately, wow. pretty quickly, right? Acting right the year of the same decision. And so that made it unlawful for law enforcement to wiretap our phone lines or our conversations without first obtaining a warrant from a court, right? So they had to go to a court and say, look, we have probable cause to believe someone's committing a crime. And at that point, they would have warrant. There'd be judicial oversight. And we look at that as a form of protection for our rights. Um, so, so the you know, technology continues to evolve. Um, and, and this idea, though, of where and how the Fourth Amendment protects us, where and how the First Amendment protects us is evolving. It's evolving with technology. And there was this notion that when we talked about um, like the difference of a home front versus a person. Like, does the Fourth Amendment protect you because you're in your house? Or is that idea of like privacy and the right of, you know, protection from reasonable, unreasonable searches and seizures, does it kind of go around with you? Um, and and so in, in years later, in, in 1967, we had the Katz case. And Katz was yet another bugging case or a wiretapping case, but it was a public telephone booth. And in the defendant in Katz, Katz was in the telephone booth and, and federal agents had, you know, tapped the telephone booth. And so the question was, he's in a public telephone booth. Did Katz have a right to privacy in that public telephone booth? And there was really a split among courts on this and the Supreme Court hadn't weighed down. And so the Katz decision gives us this answer and says, no, the Fourth Amendment protects persons, not places. Really significant. So, so we see that it's something that we're carrying around with us, our right to privacy. And a couple years before that, the Supreme Court had finally given, um, given you know, inked, or should I say, the idea of a legal right to privacy that had been originally expressed in 1890 by Warren and Brandeis. And in, in that case was Griswold, Griswold versus Connecticut. And that was really about marital rights and privacy and marriage. Um, but that was the first time that the court looked at the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights and said, hey, there is a legal right to privacy recognized in the Un United States Constitution. And so, again, they looked at the First Amendment, that right of freedom of speech. They looked at the Third Amendment that said no quartering of troops in the home, the Fourth Amendment, no unreasonable searches and seizures without a warrant, and the Fifth Amendment, and said there is a right to privacy. 
And so we as a government, and this is important distinction here because this is part of how this is changing, we as a government can't in, invade one's right to privacy. And, and the, the, when I say the government piece of it's important, it's just, you know, and Tom, and I know you know this from all of our classes, I think we forget the, the Bill of Rights and those, those amendments, they apply to government actions, state and federal government actions, not to actions of private companies. So when we keep talking about that right to privacy that's protected by those amendments, important distinction. They protect us from government actors, not private actors. No, and that's, um, as we'll talk about in a bit, particularly relevant right now. Uh, and so we have cats in 1967. Cats is, I just find the background interesting too. You know, you have this bookie wagering on college basketball. He's- Of course you would note it for that. Yeah, I, just, I was like, wow, this like remarkable Supreme Court case is about like gambling on college sports. And they, you know, like you said, bugged his, uh, the, the public telephone booth. And it's this monumental decision where the court says, no, it, the protection applies to the person, not just the location. And so that's a massive shift in the way we view privacy, but the technology continues to evolve too. And so, um, you know, we have email and cell phones, you know, electronic communication becomes much more sophisticated. Katz is in 1967. Um, what did the law do to keep up with those evolutions over the next uh, few decades? So in, in Katz's 1967, in 1968, we get the first um, real modern era uh, wiretap act. Um, and that's what we called Title III. Then fast forward, as you said, we're like moving over to emails and people are using cell phones. So in 1986, Congress again acts and we have uh, Congress pass this really comprehensive overhaul of our federal electronic surveillance laws called the Electronic Communications Privacy Act. And I'll just call it ECPA for short. And ECPA protects for the first time electronic communications. And so that brings under the protection of these privacy laws and our wiretap laws the idea of email communications. And so that, that content of the communication is finally being recognized as that's what we're trying to protect. And so we see Congress enacting uh, legislation to protect the fundamental idea and right of privacy in our communications in the face of the changing platforms over which we communicate. And so email falls under that protection. Again, cell phones come into the mix and it's not clear, well, are cell phones the same as regular phones or do they have a less right to privacy? And that's where the courts step in along with Congress. And, and first the courts clarify, hey, you know, we're gonna recognize, and this was a, a painful process um, where some courts were saying, no, cell phone conversations aren't protected. Um, and, and, but finally, you know, we have legislation and, um, the Congress amends ECPA to make it clear that our wire communications and communications over cell phones are in fact protected. What's interesting is we keep talking about all these ideas of protection and what's protected and what's not. An important thing we have from that Katz case and our basketball bookie um, is the idea of when is privacy protected? And Katz gives us something really important. It actually comes from Justice Harlan's concurrence, but this idea of a reasonable expectation of privacy. And it matters when we're talking about everything that's happening right now, because as the courts kind of apply, and that's how our, that's how our law works, right? We have this amazing thing called the common law, and our courts can update our law, not statutory law, but just 
application of constitutional concepts and interpretation of statutes by issuing opinions, and those opinions guide other courts. And the higher the court, the more um, weighty or the more binding its decisions, Supreme Court highest. So in Katz, we get this notion that we're going to protect people's privacy where they have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And so to have a reasonable expectation of privacy, it has to be one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable, right? Not just that the individual says, I want privacy and I'm clearly, like I'm going into a phone booth and I'm closing the door, or I'm walking into a closed room, or I'm talking in a way that we all can see I want privacy. But it has to be one that society says is reasonable. And as that kind of idea of the reasonable expectation of privacy evolves, that becomes something where if we give information to another person, like Tom, if I share something with you in this podcast, do I really have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it? Well, I'm sharing it with you. You're another person. And we know that we also have an assistant on here or someone who works with you who's hearing what we're saying. So I'm sharing, we're sharing these communications with a third party, Andrew, who's, you know, on the call or, or recording our podcast. If that's, you know, something that I'm willing to share with a third party, can I really say I have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it? And Tom, I know, as you know, no. So the Supreme Court in later cases said, hey, if you share information with a third party, then you don't have a right to privacy in it. And things like, you know, the phone number you use to dial, you have to give that to the phone company in order for the phone call to go through. So the law evolves through our courts as recognizing when you share information with a third party, in many instances, you can't say the information you shared um, has you, that you can have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it. Does that make sense? It does. And I mean, I think that's kind of the, at a very kind of almost philosophical level, the beauty of the common law is that that notion of reasonableness can evolve, right? As the law changes, as technology changes, as society changes. And what I find fascinating about ECBA, which expanded the right to privacy to private companies, um, is that just like the wiretapping act after Olmstead, ECBA was after Watergate. And, uh, we have this, you know, it's a, it's a few years later, obviously, but there's still, um, you know, very deep concern about government, uh, surveillance and unlawful activity. And at least then we had another, uh, Congress that acted to prevent it from happening again. Um, but ECBA hasn't been updated since. Uh, and so we're still op operating in this very kind of um, unique world with antiquated legislation. And uh, there is a, I would say, probably the biggest shift, right, is after 9-11, um, when the focus becomes not so much on just looking backwards at crime, but looking forward at how to prevent it. Right. So I think that's important a couple of things your 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 comments bring to mind is that the amendments to ECBA go along with certain sometimes there's changes or cases that that make people recognize oh we need to protect cell phones or you know things that are happening from a tech, technical perspective as well as court decisions that seem to bring to light some lack of justice in what the law is protecting. The fact that it included private actors meant if somebody recorded your conversation or your phone call and intercepted it without your consent um, and without your notice, 
um, or notice to you that they could be prosecuted, including private actors. So that was an important thing that we both mentioned that ECPA did. What happens though is we have a distinction, and I already mentioned between national security law and how um, our privacy is protected in situations involving national security versus how our privacy is protected from government when they're addressing situations of domestic crimes. So an important thing to mention here is information gathering for foreign intelligence purposes, as opposed to information gathering for domestic intelligence purposes, right? So that, again, those, right, those rights to privacy, things like ECPA, they're protecting us from government when um, the government would be investigating us for domestic crimes. We have a different um, series of laws. We have something called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that would deal with foreign intelligence gathering in the U.S. And so, again, the distinction in how the law applies. What we see... With, Paul Manafort, right? <laughs> yeah. What we see is... Exactly. What we see with, um, with, with 9-11 is 9-11 really pointed out some big holes in how information sharing occurred between those that were engaged in foreign intelligence gathering and those that were engaged in domestic intelligence gathering. And after 9-11, looking back through that, you know, the, the, the lens of hindsight, you know, Congress concluded there wasn't enough information sharing because we were too concerned about maintaining a wall between domestic criminal surveillance, subject to Fourth Amendment and ECPA's um, parameters, and foreign intelligence gathering. And that perhaps what contributed to it is that there wasn't enough information sharing. And so hence we get the U.S. Patriot Act, which amends ECPA, which amends lots of laws related to our electronic surveillance scheme in an effort to keep us more secure. 9-11, our country is, you know, um, in a place where we're having this, you know, strong reaction of we got to keep people safe. And so we have a Congress that signs off fully and wholeheartedly on significant electronic surveillance oversight uh abilities for the U.S. government to, again, keep our homeland safe. You know, that that's the thing is, I think you pointed out really well when you um, mentioned those words from Brandeis, right? The the zealousness um, and, and benevolent intent uh, it can sometimes be the most dangerous things for a free society, because under the, the guise of that, we are very comfortable with encro encroachment on liberties that otherwise would appall us. Um, so, yeah. so, so I think your, you know, your question is like, what happens after 9-11? 9-11, we, we, you know, we, we enable um, mass scale surveillance um, and people aren't really clear though. There's some ambiguity in what is and what is not too far. And there's a series of, um, you know, uh, situations come to light. Um, 2005, we learn about total situational awareness from NSA and the fact that they're surveilling bulk communication data. Edward Snowden brings that to light again in 2013. Um, so, you know, the, the tension, so we see some retraction, we move further away from 9-11 and we get the idea, hey, we need to be protecting privacy more. What's interesting is that as we move to the online world, we have really created and in an electronic surveillance um, platform that we're interacting with private companies 
all day long. We have contracts that allow those private companies. We sign the terms of use. We click and say, yep, I agree, I agree, I agree. So we're contractually giving them the right to record our communications, to take our photographs, to use our data, to use our location data. And because we're contractually agreeing to that, ECBA doesn't protect us from those private actors, right? So that by contracting with these private companies, and if you don't agree to the terms, you can't use the platform, we've taken it outside of our um, electronic surveillance federal scheme protection, right? And, the, and so now what we see is states are stepping into that void. So unlike in the past where we saw Congress act so um, significantly with such comprehensive legislation, we have not had comprehensive legislative reform at a federal level. And that's why we keep hearing things all about like California's Consumer Privacy Act, right? It is states who are jumping in to say, wait, we have to protect data because we all exist, and this is even before the pandemic, we all exist in an online world. The government requires us to interact in an online way. Our schools require us to interact in an online way. Um, our social interactions now have moved over to platforms like Facebook and WhatsApp and Instagram. So it's interesting, though, because it's not these things are occurring outside of that protection. And like Illinois gives us an example of, you know, passes a bio, biometric information privacy act or BIPA to keep our biometrics safe. Um, but again, these are states and they're carving out protections just for their citizens. And we don't have that from the federal government. And then, yeah, along comes a pandemic. So a pandemic hits, we're kind of left with this idiosyncratic patchwork of state law that differs depending on where you are in the country. And you mentioned um, location data, which is particularly relevant right now. Uh, you know, obviously there are all these changes in technology, even in the past couple of years with thermal imaging, satellites. Uh, it's not just the Brandeis concern of a potential photographer snapping you in the restaurant <laughs> or, you know, a bookie trying to um, do a bet with a potential wiretap. Now, this is, you know, the, the sheer magnitude of the surveillance apparatus that we're living with today is almost indescribable. Um, but geolocation data now is emerging as the primary way for governments to be able to track the contact that citizens are having with one another, not only in the United States, but across the globe to make sure that we are monitoring as precisely as possible the spread of this disease. And so um, how, what is the uh, precedent or like the, the law right now in terms of the privacy protections we have over our location data? And how is that being viewed right now when governments, even here in the United States, are calling for that information to be shared for the sake of protecting the populace at large from this virus? Wow. There's a lot in what you just said. Okay. So I, you make so many points in there that I just want to highlight. One of which is you mentioned thermal imagers and then you mentioned geolocation data. And I had just talked about this lack of federal legislation um, to protect our data. What's really fascinating is, uh, unlike some of the earlier decisions that we just talked about in the early 1920s and things like that, we see our Supreme Court today as the frontline defender of individual privacy from electronic surveillance of the government. And so 
thermal imaging, right? That's a, a device that allows um, detection of, you know, heat. It's a heat sensing device. So if a thermal imager were aimed at your house, it would, you know, who's in what room, where are they, those kinds of things. Well, the Supreme Court said, hey, you need a warrant for thermal imaging, um, the use of a thermal imaging device on a home. You know, that was a surprise because we had a split in the circuits. We then see the Supreme Court, and again, this is in the absence of federal, federal specific federal uh, specific federal legislation. They're trying to grope with technology, and so it's the Supreme Court that has been on the front lines in handling how does the law apply to each new technology that we see being used. Um, and and so thermal imaging, the court says, hey, need a warrant. Then along comes a case, Jones, that says GPS tracking. Uh, and the in, in Jones, it was a physical GPS tracking device that was attached to a defendant's car. Jones case, the Supreme Court says, you need a warrant before you use a physical tracking device. In the Jones case, interestingly enough, we had Justices Alito and Sotomayor really specifically point out, hey, we're addressing this and we're addressing this case and making it clear that the warrantless use of a GPS device is unconstitutional, but we need congressional guidance here. This is Congress needs to act. And Alito and Sotomayor both point out, you know, the third party doctrine is not well suited to the digital age, nor is, is our concept of the reasonable expectation of privacy in online platforms. And they really call to Congress to say act. Of course, we know Congress doesn't act, um, but then we have the Carpenter decision. That's a that's an opinion, um, the majority written by Chief Justice Roberts, that says you, government, need to obtain a warrant if you want cell site location information. A little bit of technology. Wherever we are in our phones, when we have our phones on, at all times our phones are essentially pinging their location against cell towers. This is an automatically occurring occurrence that does not require any kind of user um, action. In fact, it occurs regardless of whether the user wants it to. It's how the platform functions, so the cell phone gets the best service. Also embedded within every cell phone in the United States is a GPS chip. That GPS chip works with our um, globally global positioning system satellites in the US. Um, every country has, or every main country has its own global positioning things, uh, satellite systems. Um, but the GPS chip is being used by apps that are constantly looking at your geolocation data. So just important to make sure users understand the cell phone is something that enables geotracking and now every smart device you have on you has a GPS chip in it. It might be your Fitbit, your laptop, your phone, your refrigerator, you got a smart device, it's got a GPS chip. So understanding that we are constantly being um, tracked, our geolocation constantly being tracked by both apps and devices um, working together. So what was significant, significant about Carpenter is that many prosecutors and many courts across the country had said, hey, you're sharing your cell site location information with the telephone company, with your cell service provider, um, and so you don't, that's a third party, and you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it. You're sharing it, so therefore, we can't, we wouldn't say that it's reasonable for you to expect privacy in that cell site location information. To the surprise of many, and to the delight of privacy advocates, Roberts and the majority come down and say, or really the whole court comes down and says, this requires a warrant because so much information, we can tell so much information from your cell site location information. 
We know if somebody went to an abortion clinic, we know where you're, you know, who you're meeting up with, where you're going every day, what time you're going somewhere. And so they really look at the aggregate potential or the potential information that comes from that aggregated data. And they say, you want cell site location information, government, get a warrant. Again, use judicial oversight, protect individual privacy. So this is what's remarkable is that we have now had the Supreme Court going against the requests of DOJ, the Department of Justice, and protecting that. Now, where does that leave us in the face of a pandemic? And I think the important things to remember why we talked about that distinction about national security law is that when we have a public health emergency, we shift into a situation that is much more like a national security law situation. Mm. When there's a public health emergency, our states and our federal government can issue lockdowns and they can tell us, hey, you can't go here, you can't go there. So I don't, I, that's a lot that I just threw out there because I think your question or your comments had a lot in them, but all of them are kind of the moving parts of, so how do we get here and why does it matter that our geolocation data is being used? Again, I think it's important for everyone to understand we're not just talking about geolocation data. In the face of a pandemic, your health data is critical. And so that means, have you been in contact with somebody who has tested positive? And how would we know that? Well, in the US, you know, our protection of health data is something that is specifically protected by health laws. I think everybody has heard of HIPAA and, and our rights to privacy with our medical data. The Department of Health and Human Services and their Office of Civil Rights has issued guidance that's clarified that the law is responding differently now and has authorized healthcare providers to release to law enforcement and to release to you know, emergency medical systems and emergency dispatch systems lists of all individuals who have tested positive for COVID-19 by name and address. And so this idea of we need all of that data. If the government wants to say, we want to contact trace everybody who has COVID-19, we want to know who they've been in touch with. Like, and, you know, Tom, I think earlier before when we were speaking, you had mentioned the Israelis, right? Sending texts um, before the podcast started, we had that conversation. Right? So it, the Israeli government was sending texts to people saying, hey, you have to self-isolate because you were in contact with somebody who had COVID. And that was all done from geolocation data. But remember, that's also your health data. Um, so I said a lot. Do you have any questions? Because I don't want to just keep going. Well, on. no, it's, uh, I find it so fascinating because I really do think there's a fine line here. Obviously, a public health uh, pandemic overrides in a, a vacuum individual concerns about privacy. But I guess... The question I'd like to ask you is, you know, in Beijing, for example, that data was being shared with police, irrespective of whether it actually related to the virus. Um, in South Korea, that information was broadcasted publicly to others who may or may not have been exposed. And even in Israel, uh, there aren't really any protections in terms of whether that information is available temporarily. Um, how much it can be shared with other private actors? Is there any restriction on its use outside of the public health context? And so if you're looking at this, um, what kind of balancing act 
is required to make sure that we don't have, you know, a potential Patriot Act situation where uh, national security information is collected and then shared with law enforcement without our knowledge um, for something that's not related to the initial uh, purpose of the data itself. I mean, how do we safeguard individual liberties here without sacrificing public health? So I think you say it well, the balance between privacy and pandemic policy is incredibly complicated. We have, you know, again, I think what is hard for citizens, for all of us to wrap our brains around is how much data we're talking about, who's collecting it, who's sharing it with whom, and what are the limits on the purposes for which the data can be shared and for which the data can be used. And so can the, you know, so with the, that framework in mind, I think questions to to be asked are for individuals listening, are you comfortable with being able to be arrested because your phone data, your geolocation data, shows that you violate, violated a quarantine that you were ordered to be under because you came back into state boundaries and you went to the grocery store to get milk that you needed for a child. Are you comfortable with being able to be arrested because your cell phone data proves you did that? No, it's and it's uh, it's so interesting just because you obviously view that two ways, right? It's like on one hand, uh, the fact that I could be arrested for doing something that otherwise would not be in the information or in the hands of law enforcement. That information is unsettling. But if we're living during a pandemic and you're exposing society to a disease, then you're jeopardizing everybody else's health, and the benefit of living in society today is that we do have technology that can track this information really specifically to hopefully squash the spread of the disease. Um, and I guess, well, no, I was just going to say, um, and then there's kind of this, you know, alternative consideration too, where, um, should we frame it from the perspective of having to opt in to that type of system or should it be automatic? Um, from the government standpoint to streamline this. I know there's a debate going on globally with that, but do you have a thought on that? Right. So I think it's um, important. You you raise the, the, the real crux here. The person who's acting to protect a family member but endangering an entire community in the context of a public health emergency, in the context of a pandemic, that you know, we are more comfortable because of the way you frame that. I think that's helpful. We're more comfortable with that encroachment upon civil liberties to protect the greater public, right? Um, Sorry, you don't have milk. Try to figure out how to get someone to drop it off at your house instead of exposing everyone else to the virus, right? Just putting it in like concrete terms. So I, I think that remembering that we are in the midst of a pandemic and that these steps may be necessary. In fact, we know are necessary, right? We can see we have documented scientific evidence that contact tracing, isolation, quarantining works. It slows the spread. 
and so does the monitoring. Right. And so, 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 but if we take it beyond that, you know, I think that's the context. What is the framework in which this is happening? If it's happening during a public health emergency, which exists for 90 days or until the emergency is resolved or can be renewed, um, we have these expansion of powers on the part of the government. The part of the problem for me that I see it is where does the framework leave us? If we we know for a fact that we have the White House has convened Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, IBM, and many other tech executives and entrepreneurs and investors um, to address these ideas of mapping, disease mapping, um, telehealth, all kinds of things. Um, the problem is that putting in a framework that allows this information sharing without notice or consent to the user that's really informed notice, right? Informed, hey, this is, you know, that I think that's part of the problem is the public's not understanding how much data is talked about. So if we put in a framework in place that allows this information sharing across device, across platform, across company and across government sector. Where does that go at the end of this? So just as if we think about war powers, you know, war powers exist during the time period that war is declared and we're in a state of war. Um, The public health emergency crisis exists while the public health emergency is in effect. Legislatively, Congress needs to be thinking, though, about how do we build in protections that allows this to be dialed back in the event of that. We're seeing that challenge for the first time now with Zoom. I shouldn't say the first time, there's other challenges, but Zoom has been sued in a Calif- in California for um, claims that the Zoom platform, which went as a result of the pandemic from 10 million users a day to 200 million users a day. Wow. Zoom was sharing information with Facebook, really detailed information with Facebook. Um, and so, Zoom has been sued in a couple class actions in the state of California, and they're being sued under California's Consumer Privacy um, Act. So that the California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA, um, is being looked at to say, wait, just because we're in a pandemic, does that mean Zoom should be allowed to give Facebook your Zoom details, where you are at the time you're using Zoom, who else is on the Zoom call with you? And Zoom has since said, hey, we've disabled that, disabled that link. But that went on for and, until just a few days ago. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's the problem. We need legislation and, and not just state legislation, not just a patchwork of different state laws that breaks out what should be able to be shared and what is necessary to be shared to combat the pandemic versus the wholesale sh- you know, sharing of data that, you know, someone's, uh, again, someone's sexual preferences shouldn't be shared with advertisers and the government because there's a pandemic. And yet the nature of information sharing is at a scale that allows all kinds of information sharing, right? We're not, so, so for legislators, the framework has to be what types of information can be shared what really is necessary to protect the public health during a pandemic and what is not? And how are we going to carve out protections around a massive tech enterprise? Like, you know, again, 
the White House convening Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and IBM, if that doesn't concern you, it should. If it doesn't concern you that data sharing among all of those entities with federal and state governments without oversight of what data is being shared, how the data is being shared, and at what point that data sharing is going to be stopped. No, and it, it raises, and this is kind of a, a good way to close these last couple of minutes, it raises a broader question if we lift the lens back a little bit. You, know, you mentioned Zoom, you mentioned Facebook, and even at the beginning, you mentioned how you know businesses and schools and even the government doesn't really have their own internal system to communicate uh, securely. And so now we're forced to use a private company like Zoom, to use Facebook, to use Skype, Amazon. Uh, and so the reliance that we have on surveillance capitalism is being magnified to a degree that, you know, I think was unimaginable even a month ago. Um, and so what has this pandemic revealed to society about the way we rely on technologies that take our information in order to function. One thing it reveals is the inequality of users in their ability to control their privacy and their data. So Elon Musk, for his companies, has banned the use of Zoom. NASA banned the use of Zoom. If your employer says, get on a Zoom meeting, you don't have a choice. Mm. Right, So we're seeing inequality in how data is being protected, and we're seeing inequality in whose data is getting aggregated. Um, so that's one thing it sees us. But yes, the, the surveillance capitalism, you know, to use the term, and, and obviously that's a great book to highlight some of this, um, some of these issues. But, you know, what does it say to us is that we have put ourselves in a place where private companies have, at the end of the day, more knowledge and power than governments. And we have now opened a door in a way that, you know, is going to be difficult to close. Every, you know, school platform is using Google or Zoom right now, K through 12, college, professional schools. And no student has a choice you know, think about Zoom has attendee, uh, you know, tracking, like attendee attention tracking. So your employer could know if your employer is saying use Zoom, you know, think about if you were in your office and you're doing your work and you had to check something for a minute somewhere else or you looked away or you were in a boring conference call or a boring meeting and inside your mind, your attention's wandering. We're now in a situation where Zoom can tell your employer or your professor, hey, this person's not paying attention. I get I get a report after I teach a law class about what student paid attention. And this is happening from, you know, a, a, across the country. In one month, we have, you know, moved online. The flip side is that's the saving grace of the power of this technology in the private sector is that they have allowed the continuing of functioning of so many parts of our society. And where would people be without those Amazon packages arriving at their door? Um, but, you know, it, it, it tells us we have contracted away our privacy. And, you know, the flip side of that is have we now 
come to a place where we've contracted away our civil liberties as well. No, and it's um, now more than ever, just like any crisis, it's it's something to watch going forward in terms of how this comes away uh, or how we grow out of this pandemic. Um, you know, there's uh, Orwell was concerned that Big Brother would always be watching us, and then Huxley was concerned that we'd be too busy busy watching Big Brother to care. <laughs> so it almost feels like we're in this Huxley world of being so far entrenched in this type of world that it's hard to even step back and see how much we rely on it. Right. Or, or as Orwellian, Tom, who really are we at war with? Right. Yeah. And, and, and you lead, and I think we should, you know, wrap up with this. I know our time is running short, but the Orwellian, um, you know, sort of dystopian concepts, it's interesting because we're in a place where we're sharing information so without consent, without awareness or choice, really informed understanding of what we're sharing as we move to these platforms and we're mandated to move to these platforms without choice if we want to continue functioning, if we want to get that degree, if we want to teach our class, if we want to go to work via uh, remote. So no real choice. And yet, so we're sharing more information than we've ever shared before. We're giving it to more companies than we've ever given it to before because of the pandemic. And yet we have a retraction on information sharing from these companies and from the governments, right? Each government is deciding how much do I really want to share about the virus with my citizenry, you know, right? So it's both this expansion in data collection and yet this retraction in information. And that puts us in a situation where it's really ripe for misinformation, Right? We know that there are, from the State Department, there have been swarms of online fake personas from Russia, just with waves of coronavirus misinformation targeting U.S. citizens. And when you know detailed information about people and what time of day they're on their remote platform and what they're actually looking at or what they're feeling or thinking because you're aggregating data from everything they're doing, they're really ripe for targets of misinformation. You know who's particularly fearsome about, afraid of a particular symptom of the virus. So you can target an ad about that or misinformation about that. And I think that's, you know, kind of at the end of that, um, the, the pandemic's impacts on our privacy are so extensive, but it's important to remember they're also, it's also impacting our ability to access information and our ability to be subject to manipulation, you know, through the powers of surveillance capitalism. No, it's perfectly said. And the work that you're doing right now and having an expertise in this, I think is more relevant now than ever. Um, just as a closing question, if, uh, if you had to share some of your go-to resources on questions like this, like do you have a favorite blog or website or something that people could go to kind of uh, on their own time to learn more about what's happening? You know, I... I... I think that the New York Times and the Washington Post have been doing a great job of covering these issues. Um, in terms of MIT does a download on technology that is really been helpful to me. It's kind of keeping track of all of these things. Um, and sorry about that. And the Washington Post's um, cybersecurity newsletter is doing a phenomenal job of, of tracking what's taking place with this. And what's your and folks can follow you on Twitter, too, right? Yeah, at McKenna Cyberlaw. Awesome. I know it was my, before our conversation, that's where I started. So it's a great resource. But um, Anne, it's 
as always, great to talk to you. Uh, we have the same, as you always say, iOS, Irish operating system. So we do, we do. I, cursed, we're cursed and blessed. Yeah, <laughs> more cursed than blessed. It feels like sometimes, but uh, it's my favorite conversation to have is is ones with you. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with me today. It's always a pleasure, and Tom, thank, thanks for taking time away from your campaign to be working on all of this information sharing. Absolutely, that's what it's all about. Thanks, Anne. Thank you.